Good morning. Woke you up, didn't I? <laughs> Time to turn that down a little bit. Okay. Hope you're enjoying your holiday weekend. So I had a couple of good days anyway. Maybe tomorrow will be a little more sunshine. But uh, it's good to be here together. Glad you're here. Even though so many are away, we're good to see your face. And it's good to be in the house of God. Um, we're going to open up his word today. Um, let's pray that God comes among us and by his Holy Spirit works in our hearts today. Join me in prayer. Father, we do thank you for your wonderful word that reveals to us you, your nature, reveals to us your son. We are so blessed to call you Father. We thank you for the privilege of gathering together. We thank you for the fellowship that we have in your name. We thank you for the way you are working to transform us into your son, into his likeness. And so we pray, God, that you would come today among us by your Holy Spirit, that you would work, that you would open blinded eyes, that we can understand and embrace your truth today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The title of my message today is The Greatness of the Gospel. And I've given myself what I consider an extremely hard assignment as a preacher. My assignment is extremely hard because the gospel is so amazing, so incredible, so great, that I don't know if I can do it justice in trying to explain its greatness to you in about 30 minutes. One obstacle that I have as I attempt this endeavor today is our callousness. Have you ever thought about that? Have you grown callous to the greatness of the gospel? Here's an image on the screen that some of you may recognize. Many of you will probably recognize. It's the giant uniroyal tire on I-94 down in the Detroit area. Well, did you know that for a great part of the 20th century, the United States Tire Company now called Uniroyal, used this as their advertising slogan. There it is up on the screen. United States tires are good tires. Do you think you could sell tires today with that slogan? In our society, good doesn't mean good. It means mediocre. If you want to say good, then you have to at least say great. Great. 
and maybe even fantastic. I remember as a teenager back in the 1970s, getting a microwave oven for the first time. It was amazing. You could boil water in a minute, warm things up in just a few seconds, and even cook whole meals in a few minutes. It was like something out of the Jetsons cartoon or Star Trek episode. Do I take my microwave oven for granted today? You bet I do. Or taking another example from my personal favorite, Major League Baseball. If you're even the slightest bit of a sports fan, you know that last fall the Chicago Cubs won the World Series for the first time in over 100 years. Their fans showed unrestrained passion as the curse was ended and the championship brought home. Fans were openly weeping, others screaming out in unbridled ecstasy at the victory that had eluded them for so long. On the other hand, I'm a St. Louis Cardinal fan, as many of you know, and I've seen my team win five championships in my lifetime alone. Of course, I'm not trying to gloat to, you know, 11 championships in 100 years, you know, that five in my lifetime, but I'm not trying to gloat or anything, you know, um, nothing like that. Really, we, we grow so easily callous. As the freshness wears off, so oftentimes does our passion. Do you remember when you first heard the gospel? The first time you really understood the good news of what Jesus has done for us? For me, as a 17-year-old young man, I heard the gospel for the first time And my reaction was, that can't be true. It's too good to be true. So I challenge you today. I challenge you to listen anew to the old, old story. And let the greatest story ever told thrill you today with its incredible truth. Let's listen first to the Apostle Paul give his best shot at putting into words the greatness of the gospel in Ephesians 1. Now, I'm actually not using this scripture as my text. I'm instead using it to show what I think, how Paul summed up the greatness of the gospel. And I've actually uh, chosen to read it from the message version hoping to freshen it up for you in that way also. So here it is, Ephesians 1, 4 through 12. Long before he laid down earth's foundations, he had us in mind, had settled on us as the focus of his love, to be made whole and holy by his love. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ, What pleasure he took in planning this. He wanted us to enter into the celebration of his lavish gift giving by the hand of his beloved son. Because of the sacrifice of the Messiah, his blood poured out on the altar of the cross, we're a free people, 
free of penalties and punishments chalked up by all our misdeeds. And not just barely free either, abundantly free. He thought of everything, provided for everything we could possibly need, letting us in on the plans he had, on, in on the plans he took such delight in making. He set it all out before us in Christ, a long-range plan in which everything would be brought together and summed up in him. Everything in deepest heaven, everything on planet Earth. It's in Christ that we find out who we are and what we are living for. Long before we first heard of Christ and got our hopes up, he had his eye on us had designs on us for glorious living, part of the overall purpose he is working out in everything and everyone. The greatness of the gospel summed up by Paul. That, my friends, is good news. Today, as we dig into this idea of the greatness of the gospel we'll focus on three primary reasons why the gospel is so great. Here they are. The gospel brings peace with God. Second, the gospel gives us purpose. And then third, the gospel gives us hope. I was an enemy of God. John 3.36 says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. As a 17-year-old, I didn't know I was an enemy of God. I wasn't particularly angry at him, but I was in rebellion against him in my teen years. Even if I wasn't necessarily conscious of the fact that my rebellion was against him. The bottom line was that I was living my life my way and looking out first and foremost for numero uno. The gospel brings peace with God. Romans 5, 8 to 10 says... But God shows his great love for us in this way. Christ died for us while we were still sinners. So through Christ, we will surely be saved from God's anger because we've been made right with God by the blood of Christ's death. While we were God's enemies, he made us his friends through the death of his son. Some have called What we're talking about here, the great exchange, based primarily on a verse in 2 Corinthians 5.21. That verse says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's a great exchange. Pastor John MacArthur calls this the greatest gospel verse in the Bible and explains it like this. This is actually a spoken quote we're going to look at. So if it seems a little awkward, it was taken from an audible uh, 
thing. So Pastor John MacArthur says, let me unpack those 15 Greek words. He, God, made Jesus sin. What do you mean he made Jesus sin? Only in one sense. He treated him as if he had committed every sin ever committed by every person who would ever believe, though in fact he had committed none of them. Hanging on the cross, he was holy, harmless, undefiled. Hanging on the cross, he was a spotless lamb. He was never for a split second a sinner. He is holy God on the cross. But God is treating him as if he lived my life. God punished Jesus for my sin, turns right around and treats me as if I lived his life. That's the great doctrine of substitution. And what you get is complete forgiveness covered by the righteousness of God. When he looks at the cross, he sees you. When he looks at you, he sees Christ. Jesus takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. Jesus takes all my crap, my selfishness, my anger, my lust, my pride, my bitterness, and gives me his righteousness. That's a great exchange. Is the gospel awesome or what? Imagine trading in a car. I don't know about you, but I've got one right now that's pretty much a clunker. It's, it's, it's rusting out all over the place. Imagine trading in a car and getting a straight-up trade, my clunker, for a Lamborghini. That would be a great exchange, but that doesn't even compare to the great exchange that God gives us through his son. And you know what? You have the same problem I did as a teenager if you've not made peace with God. You're an enemy of God, and the wrath of God remains on you. You need to make the great exchange. So one aspect of the greatness of the gospel is that it offers us an opportunity to have peace with God. Another aspect of the greatness of the gospel is that it offers us an opportunity, is that it gives us, excuse me, a purpose for living. One of the most basic questions that all people ask is, what is the meaning of life? It can take different forms like, why am I here? Or what is the purpose of existence? The Roman philosopher Seneca has said, when a man does not know what harbor he's making for, no wind is the right wind. Seneca understood the importance of purpose, even if he might not have known what the ultimate purpose for living was. There are many, many out there who do not. Here's a couple of examples. Buddhism. 
for example, teaches that the ultimate goal of life is to experience the real joy of being human. This joy can only be achieved when we accomplish the purpose of being born a human, the, real, the realization of absolute peace of mind and satisfaction. Sounds a little empty to me. Or take atheist Richard Dawkins. He says, the universe that we observe is precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. As an atheist, he has no purpose. I thank God that because of the gospel, I've found a reason for living, a purpose for my life. The Bible says our purpose is to glorify God. Isaiah 43, 7 says, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. The Westminster Confession says it this way, The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, as a young Christian, I got to tell you, I'd never heard that before. Never, to, to me, glorifying God meant nothing to me. I didn't get that. But I do remember how significant it was to know that I had a purpose for living, which I understood at the time as a desire to take as many people with me as possible to heaven before we all died, which is ultimately a, a, a significant way of glorifying God. Acts 26, 16, and 17 says, I have appeared to you to appoint you as my servant and witness. Tell people that you have seen me and tell them what I will show you in the future. And I will rescue you from both your own people and the Gentiles. Yes, I'm sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people who are set apart by faith in me. That's a reason for living. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, We are Christ ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. To actually be an instrument used by God to rescue people who are perishing. Can there be a more noble cause? This week there was terrible devastation caused by Hurricane Harvey in Houston and other areas. Some of the greatest stories that come out of tragedies like these are the stories of people being rescued. Check out this picture. People forming a human chain to rescue an elderly man from his car submerged in water. We have the opportunity to rescue people, not just from death, but also from judgment. Hebrews 9.27 says, It's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. I want to share a little story with you. 
back almost 15 years ago, this church and the youth group in particular were exploding with growth. Many of you were here and remember. I was the only youth pastor for middle school and high school, and I was working hard to keep my head above water with each youth group averaging over 100 students at many of the events we did. We did an event one time where I challenged the students, the high school students, to get over 200 students in attendance, and I would shave my head. Well, my wife and oldest daughter both cried as my hair came off. When we decided to hire a second youth pastor, I was given the choice to keep working with either middle school or high school. After much prayer and de deliberation, I decided to continue working with, with the middle school students. And one of the main factors in that decision is the fact that I love the opportunities I get in working with that age group to see young people commit their lives to Christ. The middle school years are proven statistically to be the most fertile ground for evangelism. I count it a privilege to get to share the gospel and see young people make decisions to follow Jesus on a pretty regular basis. Just take a couple weeks ago, we had our youth activities week, and for four nights in a row, I had the privilege, along with some awesome high schoolers, of sharing the gospel with the newest crop of middle school students to join JAM. There's no higher purpose to live for than helping people be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of heaven. The gospel gives us purpose. The gospel is great. Our last point today is that the gospel gives hope. So much of the evil that's in the world today happens because people lose hope. Suicide, terrorism, divorce, depression, abuse. When we lose hope, our dreams are replaced by nightmares. I remind you that for a Christian, hope is not something we are wishing for, but rather something we're waiting for with certainty. Romans 5.5 5 tells, tells us that biblical hope does not disappoint when we hope in something that's anchored in an all-powerful God of truth, there's no chance of disappointment. There is only certainty. So what is the hope that the Bible promises to those who believe and receive the gospel? Again, we're going to see up on the screen a number of things. First, hope 
for our future welfare. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Are you worried about what tomorrow might bring? The gospel gives us hope. Hope for a future inheritance in heaven. 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. C.S. Lewis says basically the same thing in this quote. He says, this world is a great sculptor's shop. We are the statues, and there's a rumor going around, going around the shop, that some of us are someday going to come to life. The hope of heaven. Heaven is where real life begins. And then hope for new strength. Isaiah 40, 31, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This world can make us weary. The gospel gives us hope for strength. Hope for the return of our king. Titus 2.13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a hope that is certain. Jesus is coming back. Hope for no more pain. Revelation 21.4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Whether it's physical pain or emotional pain. We all go through it. Someday it'll be gone. We have the hope that the gospel provides. Hope for never-ending love. Lamentations 3, 21 to 23. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I go back again to one of my favorite authors for what I consider the best word picture ever of the hope that we have in Christ through believing and receiving the gospel. If you're familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, it's a seven-book series. This is actually a book that has all seven in one. And in the series, um, the books are, Lewis, C.S. Lewis sums up or brings together at the end 
the real hope of the gospel with the, in the last paragraph of the last story of all seven books. And I, I just love this. Obviously, the, the lion that he's talking about, for those of you that maybe aren't as familiar, is the lion Aslan who represents Christ. Here's the last paragraph from the last book of all the Narnia stories. And as he, Aslan, spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. The gospel gives us hope. The gospel is great. So I ask you again, have you grown callous to the greatness of the gospel? I think we all do at times. I wanted to preach this sermon today for many reasons. For one, I wanted to remind you and thereby encourage all of us old crusty Christians about the greatness of the gospel. I hope you walk out of here today feeling blessed and encouraged, knowing that the gospel you've embraced is the greatest story ever told in which you have become a friend of God, an heir with Jesus Christ. But I also send you away with a challenge. If it's such amazing good news for you and me, don't you think it would be good news to your neighbor or coworker who's currently lost? As Ephesians 2.12 says, they are without hope and without God in the world. Is it just our callousness? Or have we somehow become convinced, maybe through the devil's schemes, that they, that they, they don't really want to hear what I have to say? It's not, it's not really good news for them. Somehow we convince ourselves of that. I'm definitely preaching to myself here. We all need to remember that the gospel we preach is good news for everyone. The prophet Isaiah said, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Let's be out there sharing in every way we can by word and deed. 
the gospel with our friends, our family, our coworkers, our schoolmates. Finally today, I want to talk to the people in this audience who've never personally embraced the gospel. Maybe you're a young person who's always come to church with your parents, but it's really been more their religion than yours. Maybe you're a young adult, and you've been so busy trying to find your way in this world that you've never personally said to Jesus, Jesus, the way I want to go is your way. Or maybe you're a person who's been sitting in churches most of your life. But it's been more of an intellectual thing than a heart thing. To any and all of you, Jesus invites you to embrace the gospel. To turn from a life of doing everything your way and to surrender to him and start living his way. God doesn't need you to come surrender to him. But he loves you so much that he's offered this great gospel to you. A gospel that offers you peace with God. A gospel that offers you a purpose for living. And a gospel that offers you hope for this life and the next. I plead with you today. Will you surrender your life to him and accept the forgiveness that he offers you through this great gospel? I want to invite you to do that right now as we pray together. Join me in prayer. Father, I thank you for the great message of the gospel. I thank you for the truth that Jesus died on the cross in my place so that I could have peace with God. Father, I pray for anyone here today from the youngest kid who can understand to the oldest hardest closed most closed mind in the place Lord I pray that you would help us to embrace the gospel Lord Jesus, we ask that you would forgive us for our sins. Lord, the best way we know how, we want to say to you right now, I want to stop living my way and I want to start living your way. Forgive me, Jesus. Come into my life. Help me, make me the kind of person that you want me to be. I thank you that when I do commit and make this great exchange, 
that you give me the promise of heaven. I thank you that someday, in your perfect timing, I will live eternally with you in heaven. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I do have one uh, challenge for you before we sing, that if, if anybody from the youngest to, to whoever, if anybody's made that kind of a commitment today to, to embrace the gospel, the greatness of the gospel, um, there's going to be people, including myself up here after the service, we would love to, first of all, just know it because it's a blessing to us. But secondly, we'd love to be able to pray for you. So please, if you made that kind of a commitment, come up and uh, talk to someone, talk, or pray with someone.